Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. On August 24th, the Japanese government followed through on a plan to release treated water from the now notorious Fukushima No. 1 nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean. While the plan had been given the okay from the IAEA, that's the International Atomic Energy Agency, not everyone is convinced. And as the water began to pour into the ocean, so came an outpouring of protest, specifically from China, but also from groups here representing people who make their livelihoods from fishing. Beijing has now issued a ban on seafood from the entirety of Japan, and public outrage at the plan in China has taken the form of angry phone calls to Japanese businesses and government institutions. On today's show, I'll be joined by environment writer Francesco Bassetti. He wrote a piece in this week's newspaper on Fukushima's big pivot to renewable energy sources. But first, Japan Times staff reporters Annika Osaki Exum and Gabriele Ninavaji join me to sum up what happened with the release and how the world has been reacting to it. Hello, Annika. Hi, Sean. Hello, Gabriele. Hey, Sean. Good to see you, Annika. Hi, Gabriele. Welcome back to you both.、Um, maybe let's start with you, Annika. Two weeks ago, it was announced that the Fukushima No. 1 nuclear plant,、uh, the one that suffered the meltdowns in 2011, had started releasing treated water into the Pacific Ocean. This was because that water, which was used to cool radioactive materials, had been piling up in tanks at the plant, which are 98% full. Annika, can you recap this water release plan for us? Sure. So there's about 1.3 million tons of water in the tanks. That's like 500 Olympic sized swimming pools.、Hmm. Each day, about 500 tons of treated wastewater is sent down a one kilometer long tunnel, stretching out into the ocean off the coast of Fukushima. And this is going to happen for the next 30 to 40 years. Actually, just a note to listeners at the start of July, we had environment writer Mara Budgen come on the show to discuss the treatment process in more depth. I highly recommend going back and listening to that podcast episode if you're looking for a more detailed version of how this all works. But, Annika, can you give us a brief rundown of the process? Yeah, so they're using what's basically a filtration system known as ALPS, which stands for the Advanced Liquid Processing System. The wastewater has come directly into contact with nuclear debris, and this system is able to partially remove 62 radionuclides. At least down to the levels that meet Japanese and international standards.、Mm. However, it isn't able to remove two radionuclides, carbon 14 and tritium. And tritium is the one that everyone seems to be talking about. So after it goes through Alps, it's further diluted with seawater and then it's sent down that one kilometer tunnel into the ocean. By releasing the treated wastewater a little at a time, TEPCO, who's overseeing the process, hopes to dilute it as much as possible. If I can just jump in here very quickly,、um, Japan so far has been very particular about how it refers to the water.、Uh, so I think we should stress the distinction between shorisui, which is treated wastewater, and how Japan and other international organizations refer to what is being released, and osensi, or contaminated water,、uh, which is the term that Japan uses to describe the water before it is treated, and also the term that China uses to describe the water which is released. Okay, so shorisui is for the treated, released water, and osensui for the contaminated, untreated wastewater. Yeah, right. You have to be careful because actually last uh, Thursday, uh, Agriculture Minister Tetsuro Nomura, who's also in charge of fisheries, put his foot in his mouth when he slipped up and called the water、uh, osensui. Uh oh. 
yeah, uh, he was then scolded by the prime minister and had to make an apology after that in the evening. <laughs> you have to stay on message, don't you? Yeah, you have to. <laughs> okay, Annika, you went to Fukushima after the release began. What did you see on your arrival? Yeah, so it was my first time in Fukushima, and as an outsider and someone who was far from Japan when everything happened, I was kind of surprised to see the remnants of the 2011 disaster. There are a lot of homes still in rubble, abandoned businesses who didn't return. Mm. Um, you know, local main streets are pretty sparse, um, especially near the plant. And speaking to locals in the area, those who are in the fishing industry and those who aren't, a lot of them are saying, you know, the plan, the release plan didn't take their desires and experiences into account. Mm. Um, I also spoke to the former mayor of Minamisoma, Katsunobu Sakurai, who was mayor during the disaster and then, of course, in the following recovery efforts. And his town was hit hard by the tsunami and the, the after effects. His town was one of those that, while being pretty far in distance from the plant, was asked to isolate and residents were asked to stay indoors. So mm. he gained global acclaim by putting out a video in the weeks following the tsunami asking for help. We need volunteers to bring us relief supplies. But because of the government directive to remain indoors, volunteers must understand they enter the city at their own risk. Yeah, I think I actually maybe remember that video. Um, Minami Soma was, you know, one of those names that kept popping up in the news after the actual earthquake. Yeah, he said that what they experienced in Minami Soma and in Fukushima as a whole was something that really nobody else in Japan had ever experienced. And because of that, he believes the government and TEPCO should be kind of bending over backwards to try and get the approval of the people in his town with regard to the release plan. And he says that they're not on board with the plan yet, even people who aren't in the fishing industry. So is anyone in support of the plan? Some people are convinced that the plan is the only way to move forward, or maybe they are resigned to the fact that this is the only way forward. A few people I spoke to said they just weren't sure what else could be done, including one 25-year-old who returned there for work after being evacuated. She said she felt like she couldn't have an opinion because while she feels like the release is inevitable, she knows local fishers will still feel the effects in terms of reputation, which could, of course, impact their livelihoods that they've built back up since 2011. Um, another rep of a local fishing co-op did agree to share with me just from the standpoint of a local citizen, mm. saying he felt as though the work the local fisheries have done to regain trust and rebuild reputation is something that is going to go completely out the window. But at the same time, he feels like the release is unavoidable, too. And instead, he wishes the government would continue looking for solutions in the times to come to potentially lessen the number of years that the release could take and to lessen the ultimate blow to local reputation and economy. Gabriele, what is the government doing to try to relay these concerns? Well, uh, Prime Minister Fumi Kishida uh, tried to address these fears by eating some sashimi uh, from Fukushima himself. Mm. In terms of policy, however, the government had uh, earmarked a total of uh, 80 billion yen to support the industry and tackle the fallout from uh, reputational damage. Uh, but on Monday, uh, Kishida announced extra subsidies uh, of 20.7 billion yen uh, to help the industry reduce its dependence on China and find uh, new export markets. And that brings the total amount of aid to over 100 billion yen. Uh, that's over 670 million U.S. dollars. I didn't know Japan was so dependent on China, like at least with regards mm -hmm. to the fishing sector. 
Yeah, actually, China is the largest buyer of Japanese seafood, especially scallops and crustaceans. Uh, so the value of Japanese marine products exported to China and Hong Kong last year amounted to 162 billion yen, uh, which is 42% of total sales overseas. How is the mood in the rest of Japan with regard to the plan? Um, is the public paying this issue much attention? Like, I noticed some embassies promoting Japanese seafood on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, like US Ambassador Rama Manuel and the staff at the Australian embassy. And then, like, the closest thing I can think of when it comes to this is the SARS outbreak that happened in China in the early 2000s.、Um, cases started popping up in Toronto. And at that time, there was this reluctance to eat at Chinese restaurants. But then Prime Minister Jean Chrétien made a show of eating at one of those restaurants to kind of like dispel any rumors. Does this kind of political theater work in Japan? I personally think it's a highly symbolic move, and it's part of what a politician should do, especially when they promote such a controversial uh, policy, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously、uh, taking ownership for their actions and, and words. So, Again, personally, I would have expected no less from him and other cabinet members.、Uh, but I'm also a bit skeptical about the actual efficacy, especially outside of Japan.、Um, so it's hard to believe that people who were originally hesitating to eat Japanese food in the first place will now change their mind after they saw Kishida or Nishimura、uh, eating it.、Uh, we need to remember that there is still a domestic opposition to this plan, not just from、uh, the fishing industry, but also from other groups.、Uh, and there is a lot of skepticism over the government's. Decision making process. Yeah, right. I mean, it's 2023. People just don't take the government's word that things are safe anymore. And as just a person that talked to other people up there, right, in Fukushima, I think the opinion would be of course, the government is going to show something like this to show that they are behind a plan that they are putting forth, even if they don't exactly know if it's. Safe. You know? yeah, absolutely. No, I told you, I think it was, it, it's expected from them. Yeah, but if the government didn't do that, I mean, then、exactly. that would, would be a be sign、surprised. of big trouble, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. totally.、Um, after the release,、uh, there was like concern that the public would stop buying seafood. Have we seen any economic changes or is it too early to tell? I think it might be actually a little too early to tell.、Uh, it took some time before the fishing community in Fukushima、uh, was hit by the disaster in March 2011. So it's probably too early to say in terms of. Economic impact. Right. Our colleague、uh, Eric Johnston last week wrote about how the、uh, fishing industry in Hokkaido was hit by the import ban imposed by China、uh, straight after the release and how the market price of scallops had nosedived、uh, last week. Oh, right. So now would be the time to opt for scallops for dinner then. Correct. <laughs> you should have your scallops tonight. Right. Annika, has there been any polling on what the public thinks so far? Yeah, a TBS poll that came out this week found that 59% of the Japanese public was supportive of the release plan, and 49% believe that the government wasn't doing enough to try to guard against reputational damage. But that's interesting because while you can't really compare polling easily because of different methodologies and so on, prior to the release, a Kyoto poll found that 88.1% of respondents were concerned about the economic damage due to the water release. And the Asahi Shimbun found that 75% said the government's efforts to prevent reputational damage were insufficient. So, I mean, we could say that before the release happened, people were actually more worried. And it seems, if we're going by these polls, like it seems like, you know, people are not worried about this anymore. Case closed. 
Mm, I'm not sure about that, honestly. Uh, in Italian, we have this phrase, you say, prenderlo con le pinze, which means uh, taking something with uh, a grain of salt. Right. Literally, with tongs. <laughs> yeah. 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 But with a grain of salt. And uh, this is absolutely the case uh, where, you know, we, we got these numbers from polls, but uh, I think you need to step back right. and look at the situation from a distance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Another perspective, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But um, so I was at the prime minister's office when uh, Masano Busakamoto, who's the head of the National Federation of Fisheries Cooperative Associations, or Zengyoren in Japanese, met Kishida before the release. And he said that the promise that the government had made uh, that they wouldn't start the release unless it was understanding at a local level may not have been broken but it wasn't exactly capped either. Before the break, we talked about some of the people who are supporting the fishing industry, regardless of whether or not they're on board with the actual wastewater release plan. Gabriele, who's against the plan? Uh, So far, primarily, we've seen a strong response from China. China has accused Japan of treating the ocean as its, quote, private sewer. And it's lashed out, targeting Japan's lucrative fishing industry. So Chinese government imposed a nationwide ban, a blanket ban on Japanese fish from anywhere in Japan. And the Japanese government at the same time has warned citizens living in China uh, to lay low for a bit, even warning them against speaking Japanese too loudly in public. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's also been apparently a rush of phone calls to Japanese businesses and governmental organizations in which uh, members of the Chinese public have uh, sort of scolded members of the Japanese public on the issue of the release. I can understand that people would be upset with the situation, but does this response seem a little excessive? Like, why are ordinary Chinese citizens so angry? Mm, Right. So from what we can gather, stories in the Chinese media on the issue are framing this as an apocalyptic event. Right. Uh, There's a lot of fear-mongering online. Again, obviously, not everybody is in agreement, especially when it comes to the long-term effects of the plan. But the IAEA uh, signed off on it as have several governments outside the region. It came out, actually, that the Chinese and Russian governments had proposed a plan to vaporize the treated water instead of releasing it into the ocean. And this was done uh, after the nuclear incident at the Three Mile Island in New York in 1979, I think. Yeah, 1979. Yeah. And uh, the Japanese side says it did look into this, uh, but that there were too many unknowables. And it's also much more expensive. Uh, But at the same time, China says that uh, Japan was putting savings ahead of safety by uh, dismissing that plan. Yeah, the Japanese government has also gone to great lengths to show just how much tritium is being released into the water. The numbers they're recording are lower than what's being recorded at other nuclear facilities around the world, including in China. Do we know what the Chinese population in Japan thinks about this? Yeah, well, our colleagues Karin Kaneko and Yukana Inoue actually interviewed not residents, but Chinese tourists here. Mm. Um, and they all refused to give their full names, but many said that while they might eat sushi while they're here, they might just cut back on how much they're eating. Okay. Um, other than the Chinese, how are other countries dealing with this issue? Actually, when I was up there, one of my sources, he actually ended up being my guide while I was up there um, on the day of the release, um, he used to work at plants, including the number one plant. Um, and he was really frustrated that Japanese press didn't seem to be covering it at the levels foreign press were. Hmm. Um, you know, just being in the field, being with him, driving around the area close to the plant, um, 
there were a lot of foreign press, including those from China, Korea, and Western outlets. Did he seem like he was worried that the foreign press is going to make a bigger deal of this than than it actually is? Or is, is he more worried that the Japanese press isn't kind of helping? Yeah, I think the latter. He was appreciative of foreign press for covering the area and was frustrated that his own country's media wasn't paying so much attention or he felt like they weren't paying as much attention as the foreign press. Um, right. It's an interesting callback to the uh, mayor you spoke to who also said that, yeah. you know, he had to make that video. Yeah. He got that time 100 recognition, whereas, right. you know, locally, maybe not. I mean, in Japan, it wasn't the same sort of attention. Yeah. I noticed the same thing when I was, uh, when I was covering this issue in Tokyo, mm. actually. So uh, another country though I think we should talk about is South Korea. Mm. Um because uh, an opinion poll released by Gallup Korea last week showed that a majority of the public still opposes the release with the number against as high as 75%. And the same poll found that around 6 out of 10 people are said to have been refraining from eating seafood at all. Mm. And obviously South Korea uh, retains some restrictions on seafood and other produce from the era of Fukushima. Like from earlier? Yeah, yeah, from the disaster, actually, right. or just soon after the disaster. Right, right. It's, the thing is that uh, the President Yoon's government is sort of uh, walking a fine line over this because the administration is okay with the plan, mm. uh, but, you know, with so much public opposition, they cannot really officially endorse it. Right. And that is also the fact that they're okay with the plan has given the opposition a way to uh, criticize them. Mm. Elsewhere in Asia, uh, Hong Kong and Macau have both uh, banned seafood imports from Fukushima, Tokyo, and eight other prefectures across eastern Japan, while uh, Henry Puna, who's the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, released a statement the day the release started, saying that, and I quote, there continues to be divergent views and responses in the international community and within the forum membership on this issue, unquote, and basically asking for more transparency to ensure that the release, and I quote again, uh, will not be allowed in a manner that endangers the lives of Japanese citizens or those of the citizens of Pacific Island countries. We talked a little bit about the Pacific Islands' response with Mara back in July, including the fact that the people of those islands have a history of dealing with the ramifications of other countries' actions when it comes to nuclear testing. Again, it's worth re-listening to that podcast if you're interested in this topic. But do we think that any of these parties are going to care about this in a year's time? Um, I'm not sure, but maybe not as much. A lot of coverage creates fatigue, and people are likely to burn out very soon on this topic. But, you know, the government has repeatedly said uh, it's going to take full responsibility for this issue. Um, so we'll have to be transparent about this uh, for decades. It's not just now, obviously. Hmm. So if they're seen to skew any data in favor of the Japanese position, you know, people might perceive that as them trying to hide something. Uh, we need uh, transparency, absolutely. It's a very delicate issue. The same thing is valid for TEPCO, uh, who's a company running the plant. Um, mm. As we all know, you know, they're not the most trusted company in Japan, uh, euphemistically. Yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, the well-being of uh, local communities in Fukushima and in general in Eastern Japan should be given the highest priority in this issue as they have been the ones bearing the brand for this whole situation for the past 12 years and more. Yeah, and I think that, unfortunately, the fishing industry is going to be feeling the economic effects of this in a year and are already feeling the effects. Um, it took them a while to get over the reputation damage from the fallout of the meltdowns, and they're going to need a lot of support from the government in particular. 
as well perhaps the entire industry if China continues its ban on all seafood products. Well, Gabrielle and Annika, thank you both for coming on the podcast to explain this to us. Thank you. Thank you. While people, groups, and governments are voicing their displeasure with the Fukushima-treated wastewater release plan, the prefecture itself has taken steps over the past 12 years to embrace renewable energy. In a story for the Japan Times this past Monday, titled How a Nuclear Disaster Spurred Fukushima to Become a Leader in Renewables, environment writer Francesco Bassetti outlined the progress the prefecture has made with regards to new solar and wind power initiatives, and the headwinds it faces in becoming a national example in the transition to a zero-carbon future. Francesco, welcome to Deep Dive. Hey, Sean. Good to see you, and thanks for having me. So, Francesco, in our previous segment, we talked about former Minamisoma Mayor Katsunobu Sakurai's opposition to TEPCO's wastewater release plan. You also spoke to him for your piece. What did he have to say about Minamisoma's experience with renewable energy? Yeah, I met uh, Sakurai-san back in July when I traveled to Fukushima and Miyagi, also to report, actually, on the TEPCO-treated wastewater release And it was actually while I was driving up the coast, up the Fukushima coast, that I realized just how many uh, solar panels and even wind turbines there were all along that area. And for me, that was something particularly surprising because in the Japanese context, I mean, I'm sure you guys have been around Japan, Mm. There's isn't that common to see large renewable energy infrastructure like you do, for example, in Europe or the US and in many other countries. Right. so when I got to Minamisoma, the first person who I talked to was um, Sakurai-san. And I brought up the issue of renewables because I knew that he was the mayor who had implemented Minamisoma's um, renewable energy promotion vision. So just to give you a little bit of context, Minamisoma is on the coast of Fukushima and it was heavily affected by the 2011 triple disaster. And in the days, months and years after the, the disaster, they had to rebuild and part of his his whole policy of rebuilding and reconstruction was to unite reconstruction with renewable energy and bring the two things together. Hmm. So the renewable energy promotion vision set the goal of satisfying 100% of Minamisoma's energy needs with renewables by 2030. And I think you kind of have to picture a devastated coastline in Minamisoma. Uh, There were around 3,000 homes that had to be rebuilt entirely or partially. And there was no access to reliable energy for months. So you can really see why the two issues kind of came together, the idea of reconstruction and renewable energy and how they sort of became intrinsically linked. And I guess this was true for a lot of that coastline. Minamisoma wasn't the, the exception. But what impressed me about Sakurai's vision in particular was that he wasn't just intent on changing the source of energy, but he wanted to really reshape the the very relationship that people had with uh, the way they consume energy. So to no longer be just consumers, but also produce their own energy. Hmm. And he wanted to do this through solar solar panels on rooftops in particular, and sort of break that relationship of dependency that he saw as one of the fundamental characteristics of the old energy system. Mm. So Minamisoma, in in that sense, is certainly a success story. It's In 2022, it had 96% of its electricity came from renewables. Mm, 96. Yeah, 96%, which is huge. I mean, if you compare it to the rest of of Japan. Right. Yeah, pretty close to to 100%. And 
considering that their target was 100% by 2030, um, they're on course. And actually, I was talking with uh, Hitachi, who are developing two new wind farms in Minamisoma and one on the border between Minamisoma and the neighboring town of Itate. And when those will be finished, Minamisoma will have 100% renewable energy. And that's probably going to be in the next two years. So they're ahead of schedule. What's the division like between solar and wind? Yeah, it's 97% of the renewable energy in Minamisoma comes from solar. So this okay. it was a massive solar boom, basically. Right. There's 3% wind, but the future is certainly going to be ever more, ever more wind. Zooming out from Minamisoma, uh, the prefecture has some pretty admirable goals when it comes to renewables as well. You cite Fukushima as aiming for 70% of its energy provided by renewables by 2030 and 100% by 2040. How do they have the support to shoot for these goals? Well, yeah, as you said, Minamisoma isn't an isolated case in in the Fukushima prefecture context. A lot of municipalities relied on prefectural laws to sort of increase their share of renewables. And the prefecture after 2011 was extremely hard at work to transform its energy system, both out of necessity, but also out of an understanding that that things had to change, the negative experience with nuclear. Mm. And yeah, you mentioned the 2030 and the 2040 goals, but it's also just to give you an idea of how well they've done so far, their 2020 goal was to reach 40% of energy demand with renewables, and they actually exceeded that. Right. So they've, they've been extremely successful thus far. And the main ingredient probably to this success, of, with most of the people I talked to, they, they indicated that the main ingredient to the success of the growth in renewable energy was the feed-in tariff scheme by, implemented by the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry in July 2012. Um, So basically, a feed-in tariff obliges utilities to purchase electricity generated by certified renewable sources at fixed prices for a set period of time. And the effect of the feed-in tariff has been massive. In in the years between 2009 and 2012, there was an annual average growth in renewables of 9%, whereas compared to the years between 2012 and 2016, the annual average growth was 26%. So you can really see how the introduction of the feed-in tariff sort of spurred the growth of, of the renewable energy. Which kind of gets to the idea that government change can kind of affect actual positive change when it comes to um, policies on the ground and in business. Absolutely. You you hit the nail on the head. The feed-in tariff is a national policy, and mm. therefore you see how it's affected the nation. But the question then is, if the feed-in tariff was a national policy, why was the growth even bigger and much more significant in Fukushima? Mm. And I think that really leads to the idea of popular acceptance and desire for renewable energy projects on a prefectural, municipal, and even local level. And as I said before, this sort of arose out of the traumatic relationship with nuclear and the need for change, but also the will to change in a specific direction, i.e. renewables. Mm. And yeah, I think the, the local level support is also a fundamental ingredient, especially now that we see all around the world the growth in renewable energy because one of the most common objections to the growth in renewable energy projects and infrastructure is popular opposition to changes in land use and what is kind of being termed as NIMBYism. Right. So that's an acronym for not in my backyard. 
And these tend to be people who reject various forms of new infrastructure in their neighborhoods, right? In this case, it may be giant windmills generating wind power. Yeah, absolutely. And and the curious thing with NIMBYism is that the people who oppose these projects in their backyard are not necessarily against um, wind or solar farms or renewables. They just don't want it in their in their house, in their backyard. Mm-hmm. And this this can be for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we 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 shrug them off as they just don't like the the look of windmills on the horizon or the scenery. But there can also be legitimate um, and justified reasons why you wouldn't want large solar or large um, wind energy projects in your backyard. Your article also brought up arguments surrounding land use. Can you explain those to us? Yeah, I think that's that's also kind of connected to the nimbyism, but the the idea that these projects face opposition because people don't want to sacrifice the way that they've used their land traditionally or basically even access to their land. So Sakurai for me was was a great example of this. I expected him to be very happy with the progress of renewables in Minami Soma. But he was obviously happy and, and and very proud of his achievements in in the in the conversion to renewable energy. But he was also very reticent about converting large amounts of abandoned farmland or disused abandoned and disused farmland into mega solar farms or mega wind projects, um, because for him that almost meant giving up on a return to that land and on communities being able to go back to what used to be their home and their traditional activities. Right. I'd say, however, that that's kind of the exception in Fukushima, because in the aftermath of the disaster, you have a particular situation whereby large areas of the coast had land which was either destroyed, abandoned, unused, or not fit for farming anymore due to both the destruction of the tsunami, but also the the nuclear fallout. And this situation with the land, coupled with the trauma around nuclear energy, meant that turning to renewable energy projects was was a good way to redevelop the areas and something that, that municipalities really turned to. So in a certain sense, you have this sort of contrast of uh, an opposition almost of, should we take back our land for farming and traditional practice or convert it into solar power plants, let's say. It's like mm. a, a dichotomy almost. But... Um, it doesn't always have to be that way. And and when I was in Itate, I came across a project that sort of tried to bring the two things together. And basically what they're doing there is something called solar sharing, where they build solar farms above farmland and farmers can continue to cultivate their normal crops. And these three meter tall uh, solar panels are built with adequate spacing so that crops aren't affected below. And yeah, this is really picking off in Itate and there's a lot of interest in it throughout the, the rest of Japan as well. It's, it's one possible solution to this problem of, of land use. So while some gains have been made, Fukushima still isn't the renewable utopia that many people would like to see. What are some of the problems that the region is currently facing with regard to progress towards its zero carbon goals? Well, Fukushima certainly got off to a great start, but like other areas of Japan, it faces considerable issues with the growth of renewable energy infrastructure and and potential. So Fukushima has grid connection issues which make it difficult to fully develop its renewable energy potential. And this is often cited as one of the main issues. 
Um, in, in the case of Fukushima in particular, a weak local grid system seems to be one of the main inhibiting factors. So what this means is that areas where there are favorable conditions for renewables to be developed, so imagine a windy coast or a section of flatland where you can get good access to sun, may not have a good connection to the grid. This is the energy grid. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So the grid, traditionally, it's built to connect large power stations to large cities. And now with things such as um, wind power or solar, you need to connect more remote areas and smaller, smaller power stations, let's call them, to, um, once again, into the grid. So you have an issue of, of infrastructure. Anyone who's played uh, SimCity or... You know, any game like that will probably understand exactly. that conundrum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to picture the the grid as sort of a, the, the roots coming out of a tree. And, and up until now, it's always been very large roots that connect to, to a source of nutrients, which is one fixed source, whereas now we kind of need to branch it out with a lot of little roots that connect everything to, right. the, to, the, main, to the main source that then sucks in the nutrients. So... Yeah, and then there's a whole issue of interconnection between regions in Japan due to the grid, but that's not necessarily one of the issues that Fukushima faces because of its history with nuclear power means that it's relatively, compared to other regions, well-connected with big urban areas such as such as Tokyo. Okay. So the main issue is, is definitely the, the weak local grid. And then the other issue, which is surprising and then also not really surprising, is opposition from incumbent energy companies to new renewable energy projects. And whereas initially incumbent energy companies were very happy for renewables such as solar to develop, they sort of underestimated the potential of things like solar. Mm. And the explosion or the solar boom, as they call it, of the last 10 years is sort of affected the way that incumbent energy companies, it's affected their business model and affected mm. their ability to turn a profit as they used to. And this has meant that they've started to pull out all the tricks they have in in the book to to sort of put a put a at least a break on the development of new renewables in particular such as wind um, but also in some cases um, also solar projects mm -hmm. so yeah that's definitely also an issue of resistance to change by the existing establishment so I mean one thing that surprised me hugely which I was told during this reporting was that wind power, or wind farms have an envir environmental assessment period of eight years, which is more than it would take to open a new coal-fired power station. Oh, okay. So it's, and, and this isn't necessarily the fault of the incumbent energy companies, but there's certainly lobbying by certain companies within the government to make sure that newcomers to the energy market are thoroughly, are thoroughly vetted. Right. <laughs> and finally, another point that, a few of the researchers and experts I talked to uh, brought up, which in a certain sense kind of surprised me, was the idea that the resurgence of nuclear energy is becoming a, a potential issue. And that if on a national level, a return to nuclear is being promoted, then there isn't a clear direction for people wanting to invest in renewable energy mm. in, in Japan. It sort of gives, an, gives a confused message on who they're betting on. Are we going to bet on nuclear or, or do we want to push renewables? And I think this connects to what you were saying before, the importance of that sort of national level policy in making sure that everyone toes the line, let's say. Mm. 
Just going off what you're saying here, if nuclear is making some kind of comeback, does that mean the window for renewables could be at risk of closing, especially since we're getting further and further away from the disaster? I, I definitely wouldn't say that the window is closing. Um, I might say that the window isn't opening fast enough. Okay. For sure. <laughs> but um, absolutely, the, the, everyone recognizes on, on all levels of society, but also in policymaking, that renewables will increasingly play a large role in Japan's energy future. And in particular, offshore wind is seen as the future of, of Japan's renewable energy. Mm. But it's also clear that Whereas in other countries, governments sort of push everyone else along by giving very strong policy messages, Japan isn't really playing that role. And this is slowing down the rate of progress considerably. So as I, I think I already mentioned, yeah, companies are unsure whether to bet on the Japanese market because they face an uncertain future. And this is causing de delays in the deployment of renewable energy. Mm. Um, on the other hand, though, I think Fukushima provides a good microcosm. I mean, again, as you said, it isn't quite a utopia, but it does provide a good microcosm of when renewables start to really permeate in the consciousness of people and not just in terms of seeing wind farms and solar power plants, but also in the creation of research centers, industrial hubs, including issues of renewable energy and how we produce and consume energy in education. And all this has been done by the prefecture. And they're really pushing renewable energy as an opportunity and involving local people in decision making and implementation of renewable energy projects. That's interesting because with regards to the wastewater release plan, there seems to have been a lot of criticism from residents of the prefecture who feel they haven't been consulted as thoroughly about the plan as they would have liked. Um, so it seemed to me that there was a real issue with communication on that front. Yeah, I think with, with renewables, it's clear that for the success of renewable energy projects, you need to, you need to have community involvement. Um, first and foremost, because of the land issue, like a lot of these renewable energy projects will be on people's land. So mm. if they don't embrace it, you're going to face considerable backlash. But this doesn't just mean looking at the technology and the energy products, but also making sure that people understand the broader environmental context and also that they return to appreciating their local natural environment. And I mean, I guess it might sound a little bit airy-fairy, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an important part of the process. And um, actually, while I was reporting in Fukushima, I also went up to Miyagi, and I came across a project there um, by an environmental education organization called Odyssey. And they're really, that's, that's their whole thing. They bring people and especially children back into nature and they give them sort of the skills to, to reconnect with nature and understand the natural world around them. And they hope that that in turn will help people comprehend how everything is connected and, and get more involved in issues about climate and about their environment. Does Odyssey also give those kinds of like courses to adults? Yeah, actually, it was, it's funny. They, they started off, their main target was to go into the local elementary schools. Uh -huh. And then they received a lot of interest by adults, um, companies who wanted to send their employees. And yeah. they've actually definitely branched out. And they, they realized that the issue of contact with nature isn't just something that relates to children, but that adults also want it, need it, and no longer know how to, how to engage. Hmm. 
Well, Francesco, I'll put a link to both of your stories in the show notes. Um, thanks for coming on Deep Dive. Great. Thanks a lot, Sean. It's good chatting with you. My thanks again to Francesco, Gabriele, and Annika for coming on this week's show. You may have noticed that we've started putting these episodes out on Thursdays instead of Wednesdays. It looks like this will continue for the foreseeable future. Apologies for any inconvenience, and hey, this just means your Friday commute will be that much more bearable, right? Elsewhere in the news, the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the Great Kanto Earthquake caused Tokyo to take a look at its infrastructure, and officials are worried that the city lacks enough places to accommodate those who might be stranded due to a similarly large quake. Something along these lines happened after the Tohoku quake of 2011, which shook Tokyo fairly hard, causing trains and subways to shut down for the rest of the evening. Commuters who couldn't walk home found themselves sleeping on the floors of their offices and the train stations. The Tokyo Metropolitan Government forecasts that 4.53 million people could be stranded if a quake struck beneath the city, and scientists say there's a 70% chance of that happening in the next 30 years. Deep Dive is produced by Dave Cortez. The outgoing music is by Oscar Boyd, and our theme song is by the Japanese musician 4L. I'm Sean McKenna. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.